Well, open your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 to 20. Zephaniah chapter 3, and this might be one of those days where you're especially interested in using the Pew Bible, since I'm going to give you the page number. It's uh, 667 or 703 if you're using the Pew Bible right there in the back of the pew in front of you. And um, if you are using uh, something else and just need to know where to find that, um, Zephaniah is near the end of the Old Testament about three-quarters of the way back in your Bible. If you find Matthew in the New Testament and then head backwards about four books, you'll find it in between Habakkuk and Haggai, in case that helps. But uh, Zephaniah, while you're looking for it, uh, Dean uh, mentioned, you know, that in the Advent season, we remember the birth of Christ. We, We commemorate the waiting for Jesus at his first coming, but we also are presently waiting for his return. And as I said, uh, we light on this third week in Advent the shepherd's candle or the peace candle, and it hearkens to our remembrance. Um, that verse from Luke chapter 2 that we, we read last week in Brian's sermon, glory to God in the highest, the angel said, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And Philippians 4 The passage that Diane read speaks of that peace that we have in Christ, a peace that passes all understanding. But peace with God does not just mean that he suspends judgment against us or withholds judgment. It's not just that, that he he decides he's going to refrain from flogging us. Peace is exceedingly better than that. To those who trust in Jesus, God rejoices over you. God rejoices over you. And that's the title of this morning's message from Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. If you haven't found it, the words will be on the screen, but look there with me now. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 14, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors And I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we do thank you 
for your word always and for its life and truth that it is to us. We thank you especially for this good word that we have cause to rejoice and exult and sing aloud as your people because of what you have done for us. But Lord, you know all of the needs on all of the hearts gathered in this room today and even watching and listening online. You know the, the needs of every heart that is hearing this message today. And so God, I pray that you would make your word live today to us according to our need and your desire and will to meet those needs. Lord, would you minister truth as we need to hear it and receive it today. And so we ask, as always, that you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. And Lord, would you just move me out of the way and use me as a megaphone, an instrument for you to speak life to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, Zephaniah is one of 12 minor prophets, and uh, minor primarily in the sense that they're shorter books, not less significant or less important in that way. But he writes to the southern kingdom of Judah prior to the exile to Babylon. And again, you may remember the real brief sketch of Old Testament history there is that the the people of of God were divided into northern and southern kingdom after the death of Solomon. The northern kingdom was called Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. Israel had been just utterly wiped out by the Assyrians in 722. Judah was and Jerusalem spared of that destruction and that captivity. Um, but they were then later carried away to Babylon for a 70-year exile. That's coming, as Zephaniah writes this prophecy. We were in Malachi um, a couple of weeks ago. That was written after they had returned from exile. And that's always a helpful, um, those are helpful categories when you're reading, especially uh, the prophets, because otherwise some of the stuff may be obscure or more obscure than it sounds on first reading anyway. But it means that while this passage that we just read is full of rejoicing, most of the book actually declares that judgment is coming, that that exile is coming, that that the Babylonians are going to be um, instruments that God uses to chastise his people. And he, and he declares that both to Judah and the pagan nations around uh, them and identifies the reasons why it's coming. And I actually want to draw out this contrast between that declaration of the coming uh, judgment and this um, just indescribably good message of rejoicing and exultation that we just read. I want to draw out that contrast by actually flipping back to 
uh, chapter 1 and just sort of hopping through some of the highlights of the first two and a half chapters of this uh, book so that it'll sort of be the, 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 whole, the whole book of Zephaniah will be our sermon text for today uh, in a manner of speaking. It's only three chapters, so don't sweat it. But when you, when you flip back to chapter 1, if you've got a modern translation, you notice that right before verse 2 there, it has some kind of heading probably in your, in your Bible that indicates judgment is coming to Judah, right? It says something along those lines. And you'll notice in verse 4 through 6, he kind of gets at some of the reasons why. He says, I'll stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I'll cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. And the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven, heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom or Molech or Malcolm, depending on which translation you're reading. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Now what this says then is that part of what characterizes the people of God at this point is idolatry. So there's Baal worship going on. There is um, what, what's called syncretism or the, the sort of blending of um, you know, beliefs from various religions or, or cultures and that sort of thing. Blending uh, what God has revealed to be good and right and true with other things that they have embraced as good and right and true. And, and hence uh, his statement here that you, you swear to the Lord, but you also swear by Milcom or Molech, an Assyrian pagan god. You've got divided loyalties in your heart and divided uh, practices, if you will. And then down in verse 12, he says, consequently, that this the, a day of judgment, the day of the Lord is drawing near and says in 12, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. They just think, eh, no big deal. The God is chill. He doesn't really care one, one way or the other, no big deal. They're complacent in their hearts. And he says that this day, the day of the Lord is coming in verses 15 through 17 describe how great and terrible it is. It says in verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will, verse 17, bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And then verse 18 at the beginning says, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. So they've got, um, they've got worship. They, they've sort of taken some of God's revealed uh, truth about himself and about worship. They've blended it with other things, just become complacent as if God really isn't going to care one way or the other about that and seem to be inclined to think um, that even if uh, ill begins to come their way, they can sort of buy their way out of it. That they, they're, they're wealthy enough to prevent calamity from coming their way. And he says, uh, think no such thing. It's coming. That's to his people, the people of Judah. 
But then he's got, judge, uh, chapter 2 says judgment's coming to the pagan nations as well. This, is a, I, this strikes me a bit like, um, you know, lest you think it, these people looking on, lest they think they're exempt from that or somehow and can, can, can rejoice in Judah's calamity. It's like um, if you ever had the experience, if you grew up with siblings where, you know, your sibling is, uh, is getting punished, maybe getting a spanking or something from your mama or grandmama, and you snicker about it. And mama says, come over here. I got one for you, too. Or actually, maybe he doesn't even say, come over here. Just swat. Like, you don't even know what happens until you took a licking on the rear end, you know. The, the, the pagan nations looking on who have taunted and harassed Judah, he's declared judgment against them. But he says, oh, it's coming to you, too. And he, and he names throughout chapter 2, beginning in verse 4 and, and through like 13 or 14 there. He says, he names Gaza and Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron. In verse 5, the Cherethites, Canaan, the land of the Philistines. In verse 6, the whole seacoast shall be pastors. He goes on to, to name Moab and the Ammonites. You also, verse 12, O Cushites. And he says in verse 13, he'll destroy Assyria and make Nineveh a desolation. And to drive all these, all these nations around in the whole Middle East there, essentially. He's saying, my judgment is coming to you too. Some for similar reasons and some for different reasons. But altogether, you've all profaned my name. So he covers, he covers the basis. I mean, this is what most of the book gets at, is that judgment is coming. And then verse 11 says about the nations, the Lord will be awesome against them. He will famish the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in his place all the, nation, all the lands of the nations. Verse, the first half of chapter 3 sort of... Um, rehearses that or, or, or whatever, restates that both Jerusalem and the nations have judgment coming their way. And then verse 9 of chapter 3 takes this sharp turn, just like this sudden, abrupt turn and foreshadows first the conversion of the Gentiles, essentially. It, 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 it forecasts uh, what later will happen following the coming of Jesus. Look in verse 9 there of chapter 3. At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve with one accord. Now, when he says the peoples, he's talking about the pagan peoples. I will change their speech to a pure speech and, and graft them in to my people, the, re the rebellion and proud spirit that was the grounds for judgment, he himself will take away from them, which is remarkable in, a, in, an, in and of itself. And as I said, this is partly what was introduced when Jesus came to earth, that, 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 his, that through him salvation was extended to the Gentiles, and that's part of what's being forecast here. But, but all of that then provides the backdrop for this sermon passage, which, which again is, is so wonderful and so much more wonderful when you understand what he has just 
said to them, this, this certain promise um, of judgment that's coming and did come by way of Babylon. But the same people who are told back in chapter 1, verse 7, they're told to be silent. And here he tells them, verse 14, sing aloud and rejoice and exult. The same ones who are told in chapter 1 that the distress of judgment is coming. Here are told that their judgment have been taken away. And of course, we, we know, as I said, something they didn't know, which is that all of this was inaugurated by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That, that what, we're, what we're reading about right here, that what he foresees and foretells that is beyond their day of judgment, beyond 70 years of captivity in Babylon, and beyond even the centuries that would be intervening after their return from exile, that beyond that, is the coming of Messiah that will introduce uh, this that we're reading about here. That our judgments were taken away because they were placed on Christ. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. Our judgments were taken away, as it says in verse 15. That on the cross... Jesus was a propitiation for our sins. That is, the wrath of God was satisfied or quieted by being poured out on Jesus. So that on the cross, Romans 3 says, God was just and he was justifier. That would make a good afternoon reading for you today uh, in Romans 3. He was just in that he punished sin just as Zephaniah says he will do. And yet in the same event, on the same cross, in the body of the same God-man, Jesus Christ, he was also justifier in that he provided forgiveness for sins. Our judgments were taken away because they were placed on Christ. We know too now what the, the recipients of this word from Zephaniah didn't know, that by the death of Jesus... He's cleared away our enemies. Our supreme enemy in particular, as Hebrews 2 says, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That the law of sin and death was, was broken, was canceled by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we know finally that it was in the person of Jesus Christ that the Lord was in our midst, we, we're reminded, um, if no other time of year, this time of year, that Jesus was to be called Emmanuel, God with us, right? Or that he fulfilled the prophecy of the one who would be born of the virgin, and, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And that God manifests himself among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and that is the, the, the presence of the Lord is central and significant to this uh, passage here in Zephaniah chapter 3 because it says twice in verses 
uh, 15 and again in 17, that the Lord is in your midst. And the reason you shall not fear. You see that in verse 15. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And then at the, at the second half of verse 16, it says again, to, not to fear. Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord God is in your midst. I alluded to this earlier, um, I, I guess as I began praying, but that passage in Philippians 4 that we are so familiar with, right? Verse 6 and 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is preceded at the end of verse 5 with the statement, the Lord is at hand or the Lord is near. Here's really probably the phrase that would be more helpful to us um, in dealing with our anxiety and our worry. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. That's actually how it reads. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious for anything. That's, that's the reason. It's, you know, as we considered a few weeks ago, it's, it's often not helpful for somebody just to tell me not to worry, right? That I'm anxious, and thank you for reminding me. Jesus said, don't be anxious now, right? I'm, I'm worried, and I feel like I'm a bad Christian, right? That's, that's, that's not um, so helpful. But, but what can be helpful is to be reminded, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious. That's the ground for their fearlessness here. The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. And that's partly why all of that, this, this, what Jesus introduced and what will be completed through him later is partly why I've been saying this phrase, God rejoices over you, in the present tense. You'll notice in verse 17, it states it in the future tense, right? He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. But again, there's a sense in which this has partly already been introduced. What was entirely future uh, to the people receiving this word um, has now partly in, in our past that Jesus introduced this, inaugurated this age, this era where his foes and ours will be defeated, where, where the Lord is in our midst and we have no cause for fear, etc. But also, uh, God sees the future in the present. Like this is a little bit hard to even get our minds around, but it's like God sees past, present, and future at once. Okay? So I think of it sometimes a bit like um, somebody who uh, owns a, like a model train set or something, okay? So there's this big elaborate um, train set going, you know, and, and uh, if you're one of the little figures in the train, uh, if you could see things as they unfold, you know, you would drive past the little train station or the field and you would see the the little person waving at you or whatever, and you'd pass by the trees and the city and over the bridge and this kind of thing. If you are the owner and operator of that, you're just standing over the whole scene, right? I mean, you see what was and what is and what is to come all at once. 
And, and, and even that doesn't describe well enough the way God sees, you know, past, present, and future. So he, he sees the certainty of this day that will be finally fulfilled and per- perfected. He, he will rejoice over us, and he sees that in the present. He knows your end from the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning, it says in Isaiah 46, but he knows your end from the beginning. I, um, as I was preparing this this week, was reminded of um, just a little uh, story, if you will, a true story from our family, but uh, years, several years ago, one of our sons uh, was a, a, a runner in high school and had to have surgery, pretty major surgery, on his hip. And, um, you know, it was a kind of a long and difficult recovery. And he had the goal of getting back into running in cross country for his senior year and to run in the state meet. He had to, he had to run a certain number of races in order to qualify. And you had to have a qualifying time. And it, and it, it, it laid out such that um, he was released to get back to running, like just in time for that to even be a possibility. And he did. He did that. He, he ran the number of races. He met the qualifying time and that sort of thing. Now, he was not at 100%, and we knew that. In fact, he was far from 100%. Uh, but he was there, and he was in the race. And so we were there at the starting line rejoicing over him. And we would then, as if you've ever watched a cross-country race, you know, they... They run by and then, you know, they're either gone or you got to go find another place where they're going to run by you. So that's what we did as we go to another place in the race where they run by again. And so we see, you know, all of the, the pain on his face that nobody else sees. We see the determination. We, we see the weakness on that one side the difficulty with which he is running and striving in that race. And we're rejoicing over him. And then we run to the finish line, of course, to meet him coming across the finish line. We rejoiced over him. And I don't remember what place he was in that race. I don't remember what time he ran. I remember he ran the race and he finished the race. And we rejoiced over him. And God rejoices over you and me at the starting line and all throughout the race. Now, may I invite you, exhort you uh, to, to try to get your head around this. That the, the love of God is so much far greater than you can imagine. Our sin is much worse than we think. That's kind of chapters one through two, three, two and a half of three, right? Our sin is worse than we think, but his love is far better than we can even imagine. That he rejoices over us at the starting line and all throughout the race when it gets difficult, relentlessly difficult. This Christian 
walk, journey, what, what the, the, the race the book of Hebrews tells us to run with endurance. When the pain sets in and you want to quit, and when spiritually speaking, you limp with every step, when spiritually you don't even know what it would look like not to limp. When others seem to be running the race better and faster than you and you start feeling discouraged and ashamed. Why can't I be more like Ward Cleaver? But you know, you make assumptions, perhaps, you play out this, this dialogue in your own head, imagining what other people think about you. You're ashamed of yourself and think they probably think you ought to be ashamed of yourself and they think as little of you as you do and the fact is they're probably not thinking of you at all but but even if they did see you know your story right you know why it's difficult and you know why it's painful you know why you have the limp so to speak you know why you're weak on that side and your heavenly father knows too. He knows it better than you know it yourself. He knows he knows that you were on the receiving end of abuse perhaps in your background of sexual misconduct. He knows you lived in that house with an angry alcoholic or a parent who was bipolar. He knows about the hurt you experienced and how you tried to self-medicate with alcohol or drugs or sex or pornography or gambling or whatever else it might have been that you tried to use to numb the pain. He knows about all the times and the ways you resolved to overcome it. I pull myself up by the bootstraps and not anymore. I'm, I'm overcoming it this time. And then there you go again, stumbling over the same old thing you think. He knows the whole story. And he knows it, as I said, better than you know it yourself and better than I know mine myself. And he rejoices over you. He rejoices over his children in spite of their waywardness and their complacency, in spite of their unfaithfulness, and their rebellious spirit at times and their stubbornness in spite of their stumbling and faltering beyond their self-inflicted pain, beyond the seasons of shame and reproach, he rejoices. He not just tolerates you, he rejoices over you and he doesn't do it reluctantly. He doesn't do it reluctantly. He's the one who offered his son as a sacrifice, Galatians 4 says. When the fullness of time came, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. It was his plan. He sent forth his son. He didn't do it reluctantly. He wasn't talked into it by anybody else in heaven. And as I said earlier, he didn't simply decide to withhold 
judge, uh, judgment or punishment. It's not as if he said, well, okay, I've decided not to torture you, but I'm still fuming mad with you, you know, so go to your room and just get out of my sight for a little while and maybe I'll feel better later. I mean, that's, so in, that's so foreign to the character and nature of God, right? Impossible for him to be that way. He's not moody or temperamental. And he's not disappointed in you. God is not disappointed in you. And I suspect there's somebody here today that needs to hear that specifically. That God is not disappointed in you. You know, it's actually impossible for God to be disappointed. Because that by definition, by some definition, it would, it would mean he had expectations that weren't met. Right? There's nothing that turns out differently than the way God expected it to. He has standards we don't meet. So let's, let's don't confuse the two, okay? Let's rewind back to chapters 1 and 2. Sin is sin. Don't call it something else, right? Don't, don't try to muddle it and obscure it or whatever. It, it is what it is. When it's revealed, we need to repent of it. God applies forgiveness to it and, and restores it. It is it is that. He has standards that we don't live up to. But he doesn't have expectations that go unmet. It's not as if, it's not as if God ever says, you know, gee whiz, I was really hoping this time you were going to get it together, Stacy. And uh, doggone it, you know. Well, you can come on in anyway. Not, nothing of the sort. He's not disappointed, and there is no dimmer switch on his favor. You know, again, not as if when we come to Jesus, we, you know, it's his favor is turned off, and just he begins to slide the dimmer up a little bit. And I'll, I'll shine a little bit of favor on you, but you know, you're going to have to keep it up here. And then if we wander and stray and stumble, that he, that he turns it down a little bit. His favor doesn't operate on a dimmer switch. When we come to Jesus, the breaker is just thrown open. And it's just on. His favor is bright toward you. It's warm toward you. And it never turns off. It won't burn out. There's nothing you can do to cause a short circuit that's going to cause it to, to lose power and have to be turned back on. His favor is toward you. He rejoices over you and sings over you loudly. And if grace didn't ever sound amazing before, it ought to if this word gets down in our hearts. And so, just quickly, how do we respond to that good word. Well, one I didn't even put down here is perhaps just fall on our face in, in gratitude. But one would be, if, if you have not ever trusted in Jesus, do that next. Make that the next thing you do. You, you repent of your sins. That is just turn from them. Don't try to think you're going to clean yourself up because you're not, but just turn away from self and sin and toward him. Just come to Jesus. Number two, 
begin to rejoice over others the way God rejoices over you. And particularly uh, those inside the church I'm thinking of because the New Testament sets forward this, this sort of standard of living for the church that as God has been gracious to you, so be gracious toward other people with patience and forbearance and gentleness and those things uh, mentioned in Ephesians 4. As he's been gracious to us, be gracious to others. And so rejoice over others. See the what is as if it were the what will be. Right? Rejoice, rejoice them into what God is, is making them to be and what they will be. And then third, toward particularly unbelievers, seek to be instruments of God's redemption instead of his judgment. I mean, again, in Zephaniah, there's both here, right? In the book, one book, suddenly it changes from one to the other. God has a word. His, his holiness and righteousness demands judgment against evil. That is, that is part of what he reveals. In the word, there is that message um, that comes along with we're being saved from something. But seek to be, you know, see yourselves as instruments of his redemption and see other people as redeemable. See, here's the thing. God knows exactly who's in what category, right? When he spoke this in Zephaniah, he knew who's going to be judged finally and who's going to be redeemed eternally. He knew that. You and I don't. You and I don't. Don't try to figure it out. Don't lay odds against somebody. Okay? Look at people as if they're one of the redeemed. They just haven't stepped into it yet. Look into their eyes and try to see one who Jesus knows that doesn't know Jesus yet. And to perhaps he would even use you to be the one to introduce him to it. Be an instrument of redemption instead of judgment. As I said, our sin is worse than we think, but God's love is far better than we can even imagine. And at the birth of Jesus, when the angel announced peace had come to those with whom God is pleased, one of the implications of that is if you're in Christ, God is pleased with you and he rejoices over you. Thank the Lord for that truth. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good, immeasurably, indescribably good. And Lord, the truth is, we... We know how not good we are. We know how far we fall short of deserving that kind of lavish love. We know how hard, almost impossible it is for us to imagine 
any being visible or invisible that wouldn't be disappointed in us for some of the things we do. We know those things about ourselves. And Lord, we just fall prostrate under the weight of your glory, Lord, that you, that you are so exceedingly loving. We thank you for that, Lord. That we can rejoice because you rejoice. That we can exult because you exult over us and that we can sing loudly because you sing loudly over us. God, I do pray again that the profound truth of that statement, Lord, would penetrate our hearts and change us But because people can't live the same way. We just can't be the same if we understand even a small measure of that great love to us. God, would you get that into our hearts and change us because of it? I do pray, Lord, for any here today within the sound of my voice who have never surrendered their life to Jesus, just trusted simply in Jesus to save and forgive them. Lord, that today would be the day you lead them by your spirit and make their life forever different because of that. Have your way among us now and in the days and weeks to come. And Lord, use us in this season to be instruments of your redemption who would declare and model peace on earth toward those with whom you are pleased. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.